and I decided what I wanted to be great at because if you, I always say, if you try to be great at everything, then it just creates global mediocrity. You're just kind of okay at everything. So you had to find center. I had to find what we were excellent at, what we were good at, and really hone in on that and take risks. Some people can't take risks. I mean, if you have a whole family to put through college and have all that, it's a challenge to take the financial risk to grow and to scale. And you just may not have the stomach for it. So for me, um, I did have the stomach for it because I'm much more of a don't miss the boat kind of person than a don't sink the boat sort of person, right? I'm going to be the person that's going to be going for opportunity, taking a little bit of risk at the end of the day. You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Dr. Brad Calabrese is one of America's best respected cosmetic and breast surgeons. He travels the world speaking on aesthetic surgery, has participated in multiple FDA clinical breast studies, and has published extensively on the subject of aesthetic breast surgery. He has a thriving cosmetic surgery practice, Caloaesthetics, which performs around a thousand major cosmetic procedures each year. But unlike many of his most successful peers, he's not based in one of the biggest urban centers, but in Louisville, Kentucky, the 29th largest city in the US. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about how he built up his practice in a relatively small town, and despite being a complete outsider when he first arrived in Louisville. We'll be covering how he built up a famously loyal team and some of his most successful marketing tactics. Dr. Calabrese is also co-owner of Beauty Through Science, the highly popular conference for key opinion leaders, now in its 19th year. It's taking place this June in Miami as a hybrid event with both an in-person component and a virtual platform. So what are the challenges of moving back to in-person conferences after a year of Zoom meetings? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here today with Dr. Brad Calabrese. Hi, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Glad to be and here. Absolutely our pleasure. Um, and we're recording this about a month before the Beauty Through Science Conference, um, which this year is going to be very different. You are the co-owner of this conference. So first of all, tell us a little bit about it. Well, historically, Beauty Through Science is one of uh, all my friends, all the, of us that, who are teachers and KOLs, key opinion leaders around the world, we wanted to always go to BTS, Beauty Through Science, in Stockholm. It's been, this is, it would have been its 19th year this year in Stockholm. So it has a long tradition. It's both surgical and non-surgical. So it brings the derms and the plastic surgeons together for a full embracing educational experience with 
KOLs and leaders from around the world to teach. You know, it usually was a very large meeting. It became a very large meeting, like a thousand participants. So it was big and it was fun. It was about, it was sort of a the big meeting, but with a very small meeting feel. So you felt very connected to each other, a lot of personal time. So that was the spirit of, of BTS. So we've been preparing. We, we canceled 2020 for obvious reasons because of COVID. And um, so we were just sure that BTS Stockholm June 2021 would be a go. Um, but as it turns out, um, with herd immunity and everything, and we could get to have a long talk about that, um, we're still not in a place where um, Stockholm or much of the world is in a place where they could have guests. Um, so we were trying to figure where they go virtual, live, hybrid. Ultimately, the decision was made to keep the date for 2021, June 17th through 19th. So it's a Thursday through a Saturday. But what we're going to do is we're going to do it out of Miami. So that way, all of the key opinion leaders, all the speakers that can be there, will be there together to create a live environment other than being on Zoom meetings with an audience of some, whoever can come from Europe or from the United States. It probably won't be a large audience, but I think the audience adds to the element of this is a real meeting. You're sitting in on a real meeting that you're used to, getting to simulate as close as we can to what um, we're missing, which is our engagement with each other. So it's crazy because last year, everyone was really focused on moving everything to virtual. And you're really yeah. now at the point where it's moving everything back in the other direction, trying to figure out how to go back to the new normal. So what have been the challenges of that? Well, it is a challenge because um, we it's uncertainty. So we, we waited to the final minutes because of Stockholm. You just keep thinking that things are going to open up soon. So you can't just solidify your plans and start marketing your plans because we so wanted to have in Stockholm. Um, it makes it challenges for the for the speakers um, who can come, who can't. It's an international team. So what not only whatever country we're going into, the restrictions there, but when they go back home, do they have to be quarantined? What kind of testing do they need? So the challenges are significant as it relates to that. But most significant is that I think most of my colleagues are Zoomed out and they are just been on so many Zooms trying to have so much engagement. It's really hard. It's not filling the void that they, they are all filling, which is they want to have interconnectivity um, with their colleagues. And so we're trying to do the best we can to provide that for those who um, are really hoping for that. So this time last year, or maybe really even six months ago, people were talking about the conference circuit, kind of how, how exciting it was for everyone to be on Zoom. But ultimately, there would be some kind of hybrid model. Um, which is really what you're providing in a way this year. But do you think that's going to be still going to be the long-term um, vision for, for, the, yeah. for the conference? I think the paradigm's changed. I do believe that um, the, the need, some people just ch are challenged to go to meetings, either financially, um, kid responsibilities. Um, we are becoming much more comfortable with virtual now. Um, even virtual consultations in my office are much more commonplace than they used to be. So I think most meetings, at least for the for be a, foreseeable future, and I think probably permanently, will be of some hybrid model. In other words, you will have participants there, like always, but there will always be the virtual component of people who are listening from home. We've done that with the Atlanta Breast Meeting for many, many years, and usually about one to 200 people would actually attend that meeting virtually. So it's not new to us, it just wasn't very common, but today it is gonna be a hybrid meeting moving forward. So has the program changed? Obviously a lot has changed due to coronavirus. Has the type of um, the, 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 the type of talks and type of topics people are interested in, have you found that's really changed as a result? As now well, maybe the, kind of emerging from coronavirus? 
Yeah, so I think maybe two things. At the, at the beginning combined meeting where we combine the surgical and non-surgical, where we talk about things that are common, which is like running the practice, financial woes, um, managing COVID, those sort of things. We have a whole section on that. I'm going to talk about um, dealing with the financial struggles um, going through a pandemic and how you prepare for that and prepare for the future when it, something new comes along. What, how do you get your house in order um, financially? What are the changes we made in our practice because of COVID that are changes that we wanna keep that are good changes for the practice? So some of those types of lectures talking about how do you market? I mean, Miriam, you're gonna join us um, to really give your expertise um, uh, live about that subject matter, about how do you how do you connect to your patients in an effective way and and drive business for yourself. And then on the other side of it, the other thing I would say is this meeting always had live surgery and live engagement. In other words, we were surgeons were in the operating room engaged with the conference and talking and asking questions. Well, that's not possible right now. So we're doing a look live surgery, which means we've taken videos of each person's surgery who we would otherwise do as live surgery, we've then edited them down to a smaller version of about 30 or 40 minutes. And then the surgeon plus a moderator, like I've done it for other surgeons, I will ask them questions like we're in the operating room, explain what you're doing, why are you doing that? Why don't you do this? Put, kind of pushing them a little bit on what their technique is and why they do that. How does that relate to how other people's do techniques? So we make it as much as we can a live surgery experience, but without the live surgery. Wow, so there's, there, there still is innovation. There still is working out how to do this in the best possible way. Totally, totally, and doing it and making it all, you know, and then making it all seamless so that it's engaging, right? You know, and so you need to have the right speakers. I will tell you the key of this meeting right now, we have skilled veterans at lecturing, right? There is a, there is a skill set that's different than being a plastic surgeon or a dermatologist to knowing how to engage an audience, how to be a key opinion leader, speak effectively and engaging. And our team, I mean, from Shino Bays and Patricia Ogilvy guiding our non-surgical side, these are some of the two biggest names um, in dermatology, Pear Hadan and myself and Bill Adams leading the surgical side, along with a star-studded staff like Tim Martin, who's well-known around the world for facelifts. Everybody um, has really stepped up to say you know, we wanna help um, BTS emerge um, in, a, in, a, in a way that's engaging. So I think putting the right people on podium too to make sure that this is a good experience is also important. Which is the one that you're most excited about? Which which thing, which person? Which, well, which topic, which person, which session? Oh, which topic? Well, you know, I think that I'm most interested in the non-surgical side, although because I'm around surgical lectures all the time as a KOL, very few times do meetings have both tracks as part of them. And what's unique for me is the, all the times I've been at BTS in Stockholm, I'm doing the surgical track. So I don't get to listen to the virtual, I mean, to the non-surgical section of it. But this year, because it's unique, all of the participants, whether you're live or virtual, have four months access to both tracks, which means that when I go home after the meeting, I can watch everything that happened on the non-surgical side, which I could not have done in the past. So the, this sort of hybrid meeting allows me to get that experience too. So, okay, so let, let's talk a little bit. Um, we've covered the conference. Let's talk a little bit about you and about your practice. Tell me a little bit oh, about- Oh, it's my favorite subject. Thank you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> most people, it's their favorite subject, not you. Oh, but for sure. Mom, of course. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, your own background. 
Well, you know, I grew up in, I mean, I was just another kid in um, Indiana, grew up very modest. You know, I tell my staff, um, I grew up in a trailer. I went, I went through all of high school living in a trailer. So I came from just a very, just a very standard house. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, I, I was smart and I was able to get through a medical school. I did all my training out in Los Angeles. So I kind of had the spirit of LA and I gained a lot. I did a fellowship after that with a very well-known plastic surgeon, very well-known to Beauty Through Science, Pat Maxwell, who's probably been there 17 or 18 years of Beauty Through Science, a world leader. And I had the um, luck of being able to do an aesthetic fellowship with him. So after that fellowship in 1997, I started my practice in Louisville. So it's been a 24 year journey in Louisville, Kentucky, building hold, my practice. Hold on, let's, let, let, let's step back back a little bit first. Um, so you said that you grew up in, this, in really a very modest household, which is definitely not true for everyone in the industry. So how do you think that, that experience ultimately um, has affected you long-term and affected the way that you that you practice really? Well, I think it makes me very um, authentic. I am just me. And I tell my staff, I, I, I think it's important when you want your staff to buy into who you are, you have to tell them stories. They have to know who you are, right? At the core, who you are. And so what I, I've said this to many meetings, I know we are, we are seen at a very high level practice, the most successful in our area, for sure. But that's not how we have to see ourselves. We have to see ourselves as servants to our patients that we're just, I said, because what I said is none of my family are doctors. None of them have a lot of money. They're not that person. So I'm going to treat all of my customers like they're my family. Um, whether they have a lot of money or they don't, we should treat them with respect and with authenticity um, and be real with them and, and, and engage them like real normal people. I mean, whether I'm working in a gas station or I'm working in a restaurant like I did waiting tables, earning my way through or being a, a plastic surgeon, we treat our patients the same way. So you mentioned that you trained in LA and then you came back to Louisville, um, Kentucky. Why did, yeah. first of all, why did you decide to, to go back to Kentucky? Well, my partner at the time, um, as I always say that my um, practice lasted longer than that relationship did, um, <laughs> I promised that I would move back to the hometown and so that to Louisville. And plus, you know, I'm from Indiana, so it's right next door. So it was close to my family, which was extremely important because right after I moved back, my grandfather got very ill and then ultimately died. But I could be there every weekend and all the time. And I was so thrilled that I was closer to home. And that was really, really important to me because I'm very close to my family. Um, so I'm closer to home um, also. And, um, and I must tell you, there were moments like everybody in building a practice and the challenges. I'd never lived in Louisville. I knew nobody in Louisville. I didn't know anybody in medicine. Um, I had never, I'd barely been here. Um, and then I just try to start a practice and hang my own shingle. Um, and I think there were times when I like, so what was I thinking? What, why did I want to come to Louisville, Kentucky? Um, so I think, you know, um, I, I try to tell my staff, you know, the cream always rises, just keep your head down and just keep working really hard to provide the best care and um, the best service to our patients. And hopefully um, it will all pay off. We're talking about you moved back a long time ago, like maybe 24 or 25 years. Yeah. Um, so in terms of size, you were moving from L.A., which even at the time, you know, was the center of, of uh, you know, of, of beauty, of surgery to Louisville, yep. Kentucky. Were there not <laughs> moments, apart from the fact that you didn't know anyone, um, you know, what was it like moving somewhere where um, it was much, obviously the industry was a lot less sophisticated and, uh, and, and advanced? Yeah, I would say you know, that the industry was inbred. 
you know, in so many ways in a small town, everybody went to University of Louisville or University of Kentucky. Um, there wasn't anybody different. There definitely was nobody like me. And I, coming from Los Angeles, especially, I was for sure seen as an outsider. Um, what, what, what was I even doing here in this town that didn't belong to me? I think it was that as much as anything. Um, and then I was trying to bring new technology. I was the first to bring Botox to Kentucky, right? Like Botox, now look where it is. Remember, it is 1997. We don't really have internet barely. Like I'd only had a computer, I'd only owned a computer since 1993, right? Um, there was nobody had websites. There was no social media. There was nothing. So you go, how am I exactly going to tell people there was magazines and there was TV, radio, whatever. Um, the phone book, it's how everybody marketed. They had a big one page ad or whatever in the phone book. Where we've come, where I had to grow up to, um, to what we are today was amazing. It reminded me that when I was in my fellowship, um, I told them, I said, they said, where are you from, Dr. Calabrese? And they all had a very Southern accent. And I said, well, I'm from, I'm, I'm from LA, um, you know, and they, and so one of my nurses, John Lund, she was like, oh, Dr. Calabrese, I'm from LA too, lower Alabama. And I thought, yeah. I was like, that's exactly kind of how I felt when I came to Louisville. I was like, okay, I'm no how, longer How did you break down, really, it's the barrier of being an outsider. How did you break down those, that barrier? You know, what I did is I tried to, one thing I, I taught um, the staff, never talk about another plastic surgeon, another dermatologist, only say good things, only be nice and kind, um, try to stick to what our game is, which is to just push forward, um, not looking back. I've had people often say to me, you never ever ask me what another plastic surgeon is doing, but they all ask me what you're doing. And I always said, well, if you're busy leading, then you can't see what other people are doing um, because you're looking forward. And so I always try to look forward, um, do my own game. And, you know, it was hurtful at times. I mean, clearly very hurtful. Um, but, you know, I think now all of those same people are my good friends and colleagues. And, you know, today they kind of forget those days. And I must say, um, I always say I forgive, but I'm not sure I always forget. Um, but, you know, at the end we showed that being real and being caring and being really good at your craft uh, makes a difference. And I, I would imagine, essentially it's, pre it's prejudice against an outsider, but I would imagine that it goes both ways. Um, that when, you know, when you went back to LA, suddenly you weren't the LA guy anymore. You were the Louisville, Kentucky guy. So how did the, how did how did they react from the other side? Of the <laughs> you know, because I am a, um, a key opinion leader, and so I've lectured and written so much. Um, it's fun because I some other people that do that are from LA, and they're my so when I'm at meetings or when we start to connect, it's all of a sudden like, yeah, I was a fellow resident. You know, I, they're LA people, but I'm like, oh, Mike Schwartz, I was a resident with him. Steve Tottlebaum, he was my fellow resident. We were all engaged, but I'm also on more on the East Coast. So I have attachments to the East Coast, to the New York meeting, the Miami meeting, the Atlanta meeting, but I'm also a very West Coast boy. I trained West Coast. It's the people I know. So when I went back to do the California Society of Plastic Surgery meeting, it's my home in plastic surgery. I also had the joy a couple of years ago of going back to USC, which is where I trained and being the traveling professor for USC. So my old alma mater, I was there as sort of 20 years later, being the person that, that people used to come and visit me when I was a um, resident. And I always thought, I thought that was just a very special experience. So was there one thing that helped you scale your clinic? When you look back at your growth story, really, what was the key thing that you did probably in the early days that really helped you scale and grow? I think it was a couple of things. I had a vision because I always say, you know, in order to know the end, you got the beginning, you got to know where, what the end is. So you have to have the, 
you know what the finish is. What what do you what am I trying to do? But I was also able to take risk. And so because you know, and I decided what I wanted to be great at. Because if you I always say if you try to be great at everything, then it just creates global mediocrity. You're just kind of okay at everything. So you had to find center, I had to find what we were excellent at, what we were good at, and really hone in on that and take risks. Some people can't take risks. I mean, if you have a whole family to put through college and have all that. It's a challenge to take the financial risk to grow and to scale, and you just may not have the stomach for it. So for me, um, I did have the stomach for it because I'm much more of a don't miss the boat kind of person than a don't sink the boat sort of person, right? I'm going to be the person that's going to be going for opportunity, taking a little bit of risk at the end of the day. Financial risks, for sure, because I scaled my practice from 3,000 square feet to 16,000 square feet in 2007, eight, if you remember what happened in 2008 and nine with the financial crisis, I now went from 3,000 square feet to 16,000 from um, 12 employees to 50 employees. Um, I was just brought in a new junior associate and then all monies dried up in the financial markets. And um, we had a real um, uh, contraction of the plastic surgery business. What I thought was timing was great, which was when Patients stopped doing surgery during that period of time because they couldn't get the money. They were doing non-surgical services. They were doing little things they could afford, Botox and fillers. And we were highly positioned for that because we had just scaled up our Medispa services to deliver that. So, and I must tell you, some things are more luck than they are skill. Um, it was fortunate that that all worked out, but it was stressful times. I, I'll tell you a story. I went into a business meeting, it's probably right in right the beginning of the, of the financial crisis. And we had lots of leases, lots of bills, big, big practice. And um, my manager said to me, sent me a piece of paper at the beginning of the meeting that we had owed ten thousand, I mean, $100,000 on our American Express bill. But then she showed me my bank account total, which was $100,000 too, right? And now we have 50 people for, for payroll, et cetera, et cetera. And you have a real moment of reckoning of how am I going to get through this process and not end up upside down. Um, and we did get through it. You know, you basically stop ordering anything. You um, scale back your employees just a little bit. Um, and you make sure you tread through it carefully. Um, so guess what I did on the other side of that? I paid off all my leases. I paid off my building. I paid off, it was like, I will not get upside down again. I won't find myself in that place again. Um, and so I think it was a lesson for me to careful as you go. You know, I, you know, you think you're special, but um, this can all go bad. So make sure you've got your financial house in order so that you don't have to take so much risks in the future me in this crisis as well and i'd be interested to hear how you how the lessons of 2007 2008 really transferred to the to what you went through over the last year um but it seems to me that the the, the clinics that were really careful financially beforehand were obviously it goes without saying they were best place to survive and you know the, the ones that were doing well financially beforehand managed to survive and the ones that didn't struggled if you're if you're struggling in good times <laughs> It's going to be really challenging when it becomes bad times. There's no doubt. So, you know, moving into COVID, which you asked that question, so I'll just answer it now, which is, yes, it was it was not that hard. And I've given lectures on this because um, I didn't owe any, I didn't have to pay rent, right? I, my building was paid off. All my leases were paid off. So my employees could go on unemployment for the ones that we weren't going to be engaged in. We were closed down for seven weeks surgery, 10 weeks for the spa. Um, during that time, we did things like we like recarpeted, we redid some floors here and there, did some maintenance upgrade, upgraded our filtration systems and all that we did. 
um, we invested back in what was going to allow us all of our PPE that we can move into it. But I didn't have a lot of stress because I had nothing that I was going to get upside down on. Um, and so it made it much easier. And it was a you lesson that gonna, I you knew you were going to survive financially. Essentially. Yeah, I was going to be fine financially. So in, it, in that, I would tell you, peace of mind is worth everything. You just, I paid off my house once I started making some money back in the um, early 2000s. And people said, oh, no, invest the money. Have your loan. I was like, listen, I know. Maybe I can make a little extra money. But I like to rest at night and feel safe and comfortable. And I'm sure that comes a little bit from my upbringing and you know, living in the trailer. Um, I don't always believe that there's going to be something on the other side. Um, and so I just try to make sure that now I financial risks. So there's yeah, exactly. a balance there between taking the risks and really ultim ultimately wanting safety. You know, what's newest now is I have the responsibility of my entire team. It's not just me anymore. I have 70 employees that I employ um, with lives and some are pregnant and those issues. And so the game's different now. So it's not about me and am I going to be okay? It is, is my staff and are they going to be okay? And so my, my new sense of that is I've got to stay solvent and good for their benefit. So it's easier to take risks when you're at an earlier stage in your career because essentially there's less there's less people's lives at stake basically. Yeah. And then and the other side is I'm on the other I'm way further from my retirement then and so I can take more risks and if it doesn't turn out I've got plenty of time to recoup. Um, and today at 58 um, <laughs> there's less time. Nobody's asking me what's my plan for the future there other than like so do you have retirement plans what's your exit strategy that such such questions um, you know related to that. So, um, yeah, so I think that, you know, you get a little closer to that. You get a little more cautious, just like we do in our portfolio, right? You take on a more cautious, um, you know, stance once you're um, getting a little bit older um, with your investments. So you are obviously, your, your, your practice is a different stage now. Um, I know that you've recently, um, you've expanded in terms of locations. Yes. What have, the, what have been the challenges of going from a single practice to three different locations? Whew. So it's kind of the same that went from going from 12 people to 50 people initially, which is I used to be able to keep my eye on everything. I was a small, I could practically see my whole office from one place I stood at the window to check people out. Um, I could hear every conversation. I knew what was going on. The brand that I wanted to develop, I could listen to and correct to make sure it stayed how I wanted it. The bigger you scale, the more it dilutes the more it takes special efforts and special structure within your organization to go back and keep people, keeping people on brand. Um, and so when you add new locations, which aren't even physically in the same building and knowing they're keeping that brand and that, and that style and the level of um, service and care that you wanna give, um, that's the challenge, keeping your eye on it um, or having people that you can trust to keep their eye on it. Yeah, um, I bring in, I try to get great people that I can completely trust um, and, you know, and you have to be willing to accept this is when you get middle management because you have to have middle management at this point because um, it's big enough that you need to have those people who truly represent who you are. So at the end, I have to really, really like the person, but see their skill sets and, and their skill sets have to jive with mine um, because there can be a lot of great employees, but if they don't have the same level of urgency that I have, it can be a real challenge to try getting better at hiring the right people. So I always say, today I say hire very slowly, fire quickly if it's not right. Know who you're, know who you're looking for 
um, and bringing those into place and really trusting them. Um, and then I can sleep at night because I know they're delivering that on that same level. And then having good dashboards financially, having really good dashboards that you've developed um, structurally. We also separated our practice into an MSO management company, as well as now the plastic surgery side, calisthenics, and the spa, just de developing a more mature model for future growth, as it, especially as it relates to satellite um, locations. Back to this issue of the of the team, um, because uh, a little birdie told me that you are absolutely fantastic at developing teams that are really loyal and that are that are really cohesive. So, what special things do you do to keep people loyal and to foster a fantastic atmosphere amongst your team? Well, you have to respect them and you have to give them autonomy because people want autonomy, especially professionals and intelligent people. You need to put them in jobs that they actually can master. You need to rid, rid your practice of what I call energy vampires, which are high performing people who have poor attitude. Um, so you have to, because they interfere with everybody else's function, you have to be brave enough to step up and say, you know what? I don't care if they generate a million dollars for this practice. Their attitude is poor. It's a problem. It's a problem with my other staff members. Um, and you must rid from them. There's only one solution is to not hire them, number one. But if you do, is to make sure they don't stay too long um, because you're going to lose some other great employees. Pay them really well. Give them great benefits. Um, show them the respect that they deserve. Um, you know, and, and have them see a future in the practice. It's not just a job. This is We are proud. And then what I do is lead by example is everything I do is to help them feel as though they're working in a world-class practice that they can feel really proud of. And it's a, it's what it is because of what they contributed to it. I can't do it alone. We all do it together. And I hope that in that way, they see um, that they have worth in our practice. So tell me about what is it in your practice that you are most proud of? I think I'm most, oh, there's a, I don't know this. So I could think of a thousand things, but I would just say, I'm most proud of the fact that I've had employees that have been with me. Um, my my longest employee, who's my who works with me every day, <laughs> which maybe would be the maybe the most amazing because she's actually next to me every day. So I think I could um, wear thin on somebody pretty quickly. Um, but she's been with me for 24 years, all but the first two months of my practice as my surgical scrub assistant. And then my nurses have been with me 20 years and 19 years, my esthetician 18 years down the line. A lot of my staff have been with me 15 years, 12 years and 13 years. Ever since we grew to the bigger practice, we have a large core of people. I mean, that's really hard to do. And they don't just work for me, they work for the managers I put into place. And that sometimes creates problems um, you know, along the way. Um, so I feel proud that we've made a, a, a name for ourselves and coming from the challenges that when I moved into Louisville and how I was initially seen, uh, one time I do believe I was referred to as a malignancy in the community, um, gentle words used by my colleagues um, to describe me. <laughs> so it's the reality that many people face, right? Feeling they don't have a place, a, you know, how do you have to prove yourself? So I can look back now and I don't have any hard feelings of all that. I just move forward and I feel proud that we, the cream has risen and that we, you know, in a very authentic way, I've tried to um, credential myself um, as being trustworthy and loyal to my, to my patients and to my staff members um, and also be really, really, really great at what I do. 
And that's why I publish on it. I lecture on it. Um, I do all those things. I have a residency. Um, I have fellowship for my aesthetic, um, for aesthetic training, all the things I can do to give back to my profession so that I don't just take from it, but I actually try to make it better when I leave it. So we've talked a lot about how you've grown your practice and all the successes, but I have to ask, are there any regrets that you have? What's, what's really your biggest mistake? Yeah, I'm hiring some of the wrong people. I mean, really hiring some wrong people. I've had, I've had, I've been embezzled. Um, I've also had them, I've lost some great employees because of how they treated them before I can identify it. Um, and that's always hard. I personally have always generally made good, maintain good relationships with those people. Fortunately, they never, they always still liked me. They just didn't want to work for that person. Um, but it's hard and it's frustrating at times. I have such a great team now with a great CFO, Sherry um, Daniels and um, Nikolai um, Neville as my COO. They are so good um, that I just wish I... Clearly hiring the right people has been absolutely key for you. And when it's gone wrong, then that's been a disaster. So what have you learned along the way about how to hire the right people? What are the key things? Well, there's one major one. Hire on attitude, not aptitude. Hire on who they are as a human being, their attitude. Because if it's aptitude, of course, you're going to have to have a certain level. But when I see um, you know, CVs or resumes, I'm only going to interview those people who have the right credentials to do the job. Beyond that, you should put the you should put that resume away and look at the person and figure out who they are as a human being, how they will treat other human beings, how they will work within the organization. Because guess what? You can't change attitude. I may be able to skill them up. I can train them up to uh, jobs I need them to do within this practice. But the ability to change their attitude at 30 or 40, that I'm going to make them something different than they are, is impossible. So hire on, um, on attitude and not abilities. And when things have gone wrong in the hiring, um, it sounds like, and I'm sure this is common for many businesses, not just in the aesthetic industry, but everywhere. It sounds like they almost leave a trail of destruction behind them. Um, you, with, with bad atmosphere. How are we going to buy about rectifying that when that's happened? Ooh, that's a hard one. I have a meeting with all my staff together, especially when it's a significant one, like a chief operating officer or something. And we have to go back to ground. I go back and start telling stories again, right? Um, and you apologize um, and you and you share with them once again, your vision and, you know, for it. I had two for my, one of my last, my last, I've only had a couple really bad ones, but my last one, I had to call personally every one of my vendors, one of my corporate sponsors, people that I order from and say, what has been your, what's been going on and come to find out she had excluded any of them from coming to the office. We always had a very open policy. I mean, it was sort of nightmarish and they're caught between not wanting to step over this, the operating, the operations director's um, you know, control um, to get back to me. They didn't know how to address it. I had to call each one and call them in for a meeting and reset wh who we are and what we are and what we're about. You have to go back and reset the culture and say, that's not who we are. And I apologize for missing this, you know, um, and then listen to people. You know, one thing that's unique is my husband came into the practice about five years ago. And the best thing about him, and he kind of does just operations. He's not in the operations. He does more strategic planning for other things. So he doesn't report to anybody and nobody reports to him. He's sort of, an assistant, but he has a great eye for things, right? He can step back and see things and give me a vision that I don't. And sometimes people will tell them him things they wouldn't tell me. And that's been really helpful. 
So, you know, listen to the people around you. Um, they're probably well, telling you the truth. Ultimately, it's exactly what you said. That as, as a business, any business grows, the owner becomes further and further away from what's totally. actually happening on the ground. But you actually have someone on the ground to, to report back to you. And that, that, Which that's what it really does. Yeah. Super helpful. I can't even tell you how helpful that is. A true advocate. I mean, a true person who you know for sure is on the same team with you and only has your best interests at heart and, you know, and cares about you to do that. Not everybody can have that, you know, um, but it's, but that's been helpful. If it's not a spouse, if the truth is in the aesthetic industry, it very often is a spouse. Um, yeah. But if it isn't, then who could that, who, who would you recommend? I, well, a couple of things I would say, if it, your spouse is in the business, nobody should report to them. That's just a horrible thing, right? Nobody should report to them. They should can't work for the spouse. You know, that's a, that's really, really hard to do. They should stay in other functions so that they, there's a whole core of people and management structure that doesn't include um, that person, how can they really go to their manager if it's the wife, the the wife of the plastic surgeon, and complain? That's going to be a really um, challenging thing. But I think you you have to hire the people in there. We always also we also brought in structure like HR um, into our organization. Sometimes it's helpful to have a, outside of the managerial um, scale. There is to have an outside person, a confidential way, can listen to complaints that you can go to them about issues going on, how to handle employees. And that resource is not in the chain of command um, for it. And I think that could be a very nice way to do it. Um, and that's what we did in our practice. Okay, so let let me ask you about something slightly different now. Your marketing, like obviously, you managed to build a practice out of out of pretty out of nothing from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Phone so, books. <laughs> yeah, so, right. Okay, so your mar your marketing must have been very powerful. Um, of course, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when you started out, it was a very, very different marketing scene. Um, but what's, what's over the years, what's worked for you best? Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, initially it was, you know, making sure you had a website and you had places to go um, to be able to show, showcase what you did. I mean, initially, I think open houses were really good. We really started an open house 20 years ago. Um, and like lunch and learns, those sort of things don't cost you much money. People have to see you. They have to know who you are. Um, and I'm not just Dr. Calabrese. People all have an idea of who that person is. Um, but when they meet you, then there's a whole different level of that relationship. So I do believe any way you can get in front of their face is important. We developed a newsletter many, many years ago, which has grown. Um, and it used to be twice a year. Now it's just once a year, but it's now a mag. It, 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 we have a digital form, but we actually send it out by snail mail too. And to probably about 30 to 40,000 um, of our customers that are our patients, plus a few others. But generally, um, I have 45,000 patients um, in my database. So maybe about 25 or 30,000 of those more active patients we send it to. But now this, this is a, more of a magazine because it's about 65 pages long. It's glossy. It's gorgeous. It, it basically talks about so many things and procedures and non-surgical services and stories and testimonials. Um, and they keep it on because it's such a nice one. They keep it on their um, you know, on their um, sofa or, you know, next to their um, bed to read periodically. They keep track of it. They don't throw it away. It's not a little paper thing. Um, it's been really helpful. Plus our open house we've done for 20 years, like each year now, even we did a, this year, it was not even a live meeting. It was sort of like virtually and like stop by other times. And we still do. We generate about two, this year we generated $2.4 million during our two weeks of just open house pre-sales um, on non-surgical services. 
Um, so open house is extremely- This year when people couldn't, I'm assuming people couldn't just come in this year. Yeah, they could come in, but not as a group. They'd come in like a patient, have an appointment, et cetera, or call in or go online to order. And so they pre-order. So what you're trying to build, so the key I would tell that anybody now trying to build it, build loyalty. How do you build loyalty? Well, if they buy all their services in November at our open house, they're going to use them during the year because they already own them with you, right? So the more you can sell, the more loyal they are. The other thing we added, which is another extremely important thing, was a loyalty program, which we call Calo Perks, which that program means that it's just kind of like massage envy in a way or something like that. Every month, we take a certain amount of money out of their credit card and it goes into their Calo account. It is a savings account within our practice for them. It's what my mother used to do when she would buy a blouse and couldn't afford it and they put it in layaway. And so and she'd pay on it until she could get it. Same thing here. You're helping them budget. And because of that, because they're loyal to you, they get discounts at tiers based on how much they give um, each month to their savings, 10%, 15%, or 20% um, as a loyalty back to them for doing it. So if you're at the highest tier of 20%, you'll never pay full price for a non-surgical service because it's loyalty. So currently we started that a year and a half to two years ago. We have 900 um, patients that are in our loyalty program. We generate over $100,000 a month um, just into our accounts of people who are actually loyal to us, who will keep coming and having their treatments. They also, what we know is from other loyalty programs, that if they already spent money on their credit card and they come through the door, they are going to kind of forget they'd spent that money. It's sort of already spent. So they're more likely to upsell. And so you'll get about a 40% increase in the uptick of what they will spend because they've already budgeted part of that money. So it's not so expensive when they come back in. So so I want to take a step back though and actually ask you again about your um, what you mentioned about the open houses because the, all the open days, just because I know that many, that's something that many clinics struggle with, right? They announce these big open days and then three people turn up. So how do you make that into a, literally, I've seen that happen, literally. No, um, no. So, so, so how do you, what are you doing on those open days that really makes it sell out um, and also makes people buy? So we have generally about 1,500 to 2,000 people on our one day open house event. It used to be two days, it's now one day. It's all day long from noon until eight. We make it fun, right? So we make it, so it's music, you know, disc jockeys and music and it's, and all of our employees are there and we're circling and we have wine and hors d'oeuvres and champagne. It's an event. It's an, oh, it's an event. And people know it, like they look forward to the event. Like everybody who's, I don't say everybody's in it, but there's a lot of people and friends that are there, right? So all day long, it just goes all day long. And so um, I think that, you know, what we give them also is what well, we got smart. You can't only sell so much on that one day, right? It's busy and we want them to have fun. So we do pre-sales. So we do pre-sales starting two weeks prior to that event. They can pre-sell buy online. They can fill out their order form and pre-buy on their order form that takes effect once we hit the date of the open house. So we have forms and they just fill them out or they can go online and fill them out and send them to us. So we start taking orders. So truthfully, we only sell about 25% of our sales during the open house event. The rest of it comes, we just got smart at knowing how to um, make it still a fun event and not be overwhelmed with buying then. Come in and buy first and then come to the party and have fun. Um, and we try to make that easy for them. Sounds fantastic. And then during coronavirus, how have you, um, I, I yeah. don't know what the situation is like in Kentucky, but in many places, 
literally you can't come into a clinic now without a very strict appointment yeah um, definitely can't be within two meters of anyone else so how do you, yeah. you adjust it all these these big money makers to the corona yeah. environment yeah well remember i forgot to say is that you know all of our vendors are there too and for these people that are doing open house your vendors your people that you sell their skincare products you sell their injectables and toxins they will help pay for the party they are making money when you're making money and so use them partner with those vendors um in order to help them fund um, the event you're going to have. So this year, up until a week before the event, things were opening up and we were going to have, we we had ordered a big tent to have a big outdoor tent combined with the office, mask only, but in the tent, you could have some champagne. It was the whole event to do it safely. And then the governor crunched back down on things because we got the surge in November, right? October-ish after, in November leading into what he was afraid of Thanksgiving. And so we had to go completely cancel the whole event. Um, and when it was all said and done, um, financially, we did better than we did the year before. People just adjusted to it and they got it and they didn't blame us for it. And they came in on their other hours and and stopped by and made their purchases or did them online instead um, for that. And so we just had to adjust to it. Um, I was, I promise you, because it's an important event for us, it's, there's a nerve wracking sort of, you know, your stomach falls a little bit. You're like, oh my gosh, this is, this event's going to be gone. Um, but it actually turned out okay. Yeah, I can believe it because everything, you know, everything changes so quickly and that's a, you know, it's and, a event for the year. Patient, I think in all aesthetics, at least in the United States, but I think around the world too, it's post COVID, it's been rampant busy. Like everybody's up 20 to 40% um, in aesthetics. And I don't, I don't know all the reasons for that, but I think people aren't spending their money on trips and other things. I think also people just have time. They're sitting home, they have time to recover and they're looking on Zoom at themselves and- we did a very interesting survey of, uh, of different um, aesthetic clinic owners, and it was actually astounding how pretty much everyone said that they were up um, yeah. and, that, and that they were busier than ever, almost no matter where they were in the world. And so I think yes. good times. It's a universal, it was a global event. It was a global yeah. response to a pandemic. Um, I think that I think one thing's for sure. In the, especially in the, forget plastic surgery, but in the Medispa business, in the aesthetics beautification business, um, it's, we've become part of their routine, just like the beauty shop was um, for my grandmother. We, we, that's part of what they do. And when they don't get to do it, there's anxiety. And they were like, oh no, you're not taking everything away from me. I can go in there and have this done. And I think that's how they felt about it. Yeah, I mean, we, we kept on hearing from various doctors that we work with that in the first lockdown, right when they said that the first lockdown was going to happen, patients kind of phoning up in absolute panic and patients becoming aggressive because they thought they weren't going to get their injectables. Um, and so I canceled so many people like for surgery. Like, I mean, you know, it's horrible. And they're like just planning in all this time. Um, you know, so when we came out of COVID, so when we came out and we could start opening back up again, we had 935 patients to get off of our queue and go back and reschedule for either non-surgical or surgical services. So we had a formidable job in front of us um, to try to get everybody back logged back on the schedule. So what's coming up that you're really excited about? We've talked about a lot of things that you have done. Obviously, there's the conference coming up, but what what's coming up in your practice that you are really excited about? Well, I think a couple of things. We, a couple of things. I just published a book on augmentation mass effects. I just published a whole big video series through quality, quality, quality medical publishing, QMP, 
um, on breast lifting and that sort of thing, which I was happy about. I'm currently writing another book, which is on revisional breast surgery for QMP. So I'm, I'm excited about that because I'm excited that I'm, I, because of COVID, I've had some time to sit down and write. I've written 20 chapters over the last year for other people's books too. Um, so I've done that. And in the practice, we're, we've got our growth on, you know, we're doing satellites. So um, we're really scaling up our, our two satellites very nicely um, with it. And we're going to probably open two more over the next year in two of adjacent cities. So we're just kind of scaling up the, our satellites um, business. Um, we're growing I, 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 rapidly. I'm interested, by the way, that you've been in business for so long and you're now at the stage where you are opening up all these satellite offices. Like what made you think after 20 years, now is the time? Well, it's similar to what I said um, earlier this week when I was um, talking to somebody about giving lectures. To, I was a traveling professor for the Washington University in St. Louis. And I said, well, let me just say, um, I really didn't start lecturing until after I'd been in practice for 10 or 12 years. I didn't start lecturing before I knew something, right? And I think the same thing's true about um, expanding. People get in and they want to expand and they want to scale a model that's not even a proven model, right? And then it falls apart and they don't know why. Um, I definitely had to get in and and see what it was about, learn how to, you, I told you all the things we've done, like turning it into an MSO, and but there's a lot to do to be able to scale and scale successfully. Um, and so we're only now at the place and with the right team in place that we think we can do it and be 100% sure we're gonna be successful. And that's what it took. So interesting. So essentially you think a lot of people scale too early before they way, have- way, way too early. Cause guess what? Every once in a while, the ones we remember, scale quickly and they do really, really great and then they sell out to private equity or something. Um, but there's a ton of businesses that don't do that and they fail. We don't ever notice those, um, but that's the that's the traditional story of the small business um, in the United States, right? There's a lot that fell and we don't know about it. Um, so scaling successfully is the challenge. I'm for any business, so. It, isn't it though, isn't it though? You wouldn't think it is, you know, and then understanding that when you get, you become innovational and you're growing, but at some point in time, you become operational because your growth can't sustain because you don't have enough manpower and or whatever to establish an innovational growth curve. Um, and you're going to have to do something, but you may want to be just satisfied at a slow operational growth rate without having to be innovational all the time, unless you're really ready to put in. The last thing I would say about that is what it takes in time and energy in my life, too, and, and having to be all in. Um, on the game, you know, are you in it to win or are you in it not to lose? I've always said that. Are you in it to win? Or are you in it not to lose? Um, if you're in it to win, it takes a lot of effort and you got to really make sure that you're up for that task and for that game. It is Sunday today. I got up and I started working at 5 a.m., working on talks for the Rome Dubai meeting, working for me. I had a two hour Zoom meeting. I had another webinar for an hour. I had this meeting with you. It is just what it is. I'm just saying, make sure you're up for the game um, because you can't poop out um, <laughs> into, into the second inning. I mean, you're going to have to keep it going if you really want this to be sustainable. I think that is a fantastic place to end. So first of all, thank you very much for your time. Um, thank you. Absolutely fascinating. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they get in touch with you? And first of all, just give us again the BTS details just so that we know those. Yeah, so the website is btsstockholm.com because this is the Stockholm meeting. It's actually in Miami. It's June 17th through 19th. It's a live meeting, but it's also a, a hybrid meeting. So there's a virtual component. You get both tracks of non-surgical and surgical. We would love to see any of you in Miami. We also got hotel rooms 
for $199 a night, which they're running for about $750 to $1,000 a night in Miami right now. So that's a really great, inexpensive way to get to a meeting and re-engage with your colleagues. So I'd and, encourage anybody that can. People can. buy virtual tickets as well. Yes, uh, bts.com, you can buy your virtual ticket. We brought the cost down because of all the challenges associated with everybody's schedule. So we understand that. So it's going to be good. Fantastic. So that's BTS. Now, if people want to look you up or get in touch with you, how can they do that? Yeah, I think www.caloSpa or caloaesthetics.com. I'm also Dr. Brad at calibrace.com. You can email me. I get lots of emails. Um, our tags are at Calispa, both on Facebook and Instagram. So at Calispa, super easy. Um, so that's how you can get a hold of me. And of course, all those links, including the link to BTS, are going to be in the show notes. Anyone who is listening, just go to the bottom of this um, of, the, of the of the podcast, and all those links and all those details will be there. So thank you very much again, Dr. Brad, Brad Calabrese, and everyone else. I will see you on the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. <laughs>